This podcast is sponsored by I2C, providing innovative banking and payments, quickly get to market and optimize profitability with I2C's best-in-class credit, debit, prepaid, and core banking solutions. Go to www.i2cinc.com. That's www.i2cinc.com to learn more. Welcome to the Tearsheet Podcast, where we navigate financial services together with an eye on technology, innovation, new models, and changing expectations. I'm Tearsheet Editor-in-Chief, Zach Miller. And on today's episode, we dive into the dynamic world of financial institutions and their strategies for the year 2024. I'm thrilled to have had the opportunity to sit down with Serena Smith, Chief Client Officer at I2C, whose next-gen platform empowers financial institutions and fintechs of all sizes with no-code building block technology. And throughout our conversation, Serena shares insights garnered from her extensive experience and global perspective in the industry. From navigating the challenges faced by fintechs in a drying up funding environment to addressing legacy technology obstacles within traditional banking, we explore the evolving landscape of financial services. Serena's expertise sheds light on the trend shaping 2024, including the significance of real-time payments, the role of AI in financial services, and the critical need to meet the expectations of younger, digitally native generations like Gen Z and Gen Alpha. We also unpack I2C's approach with a unified tech stack, empowering financial institutions to streamline their services across diverse geographies. Join us as we delve into the opportunities, challenges, and transformative potential that lie ahead for financial institutions in the fast-paced world of 2024. So without further ado, let's delve into our conversation with Serena Smith. Great. So who are you and what do you do? I am Serena Smith. I am the Chief Client Officer at I2C. And what that really means is from the time a client is signed... Um, They're turned over to my team, and I'm responsible for that complete experience that they have with I2C, from implementation to ongoing servicing to contract renewal, all of that. The single neck to choke, proverbially. Exactly. Yeah. That's right. And, and can you give us a flavor for what type of clients you work with? You know, and that's one of the exciting things about I2C is because not only do we work with banks, but we work with uh, fintechs. Mm-hmm. Um and not just in the U.S., but globally. And so we have the opportunity to work with all flavors, with all different feature functionality that clients may be looking for around the world. Great. And one of the interesting things, one of the things I'm excited to talk to you about, Serena, is given that perspective, the different types of clients and the geographic spread that you have, I'm, I, let's jump into 2024 trends. Like, what are you seeing out there? What are, what are your clients, what are some of the biggest challenges your clients are facing today? And We'll we'll get to get into the specifics, but I'm kind of let's let's start at a very high level. Okay. So when I think about the client base and challenges that they have, um, one I think still coming out of the challenges for from 2023 is fintechs. A lot of the money's dried up from a fintech perspective. A lot mm-hmm. of them are trying to find profitability. I think that will continue as we start into 2024. I think from an FI space, banks will continue to look at their own tech stacks to determine what do they need to do to continue to stay relevant in the markets, especially as the younger generations keep getting older and they're looking to consume more and more of the products. 
And I think, you know, as these new technologies continue to roll out, like said now, I think um, all of these spaces trying to figure out what are the best use cases and how do I really take advantage of that? So um, it's very interesting for me because, um, you know, as we think about all of those challenges that are there, there's also a ton of opportunities that banks and fintechs have to solve these challenges and really become the player of choice as we move forward in this space. Great. That was a wonderful answer, by the way, because there's, I, I think we can spend the rest of this conversation kind of peeling that apart. Let's start with the big banks. Um, we've had a lot of, you know, chief product officers, chief technology officers on this show. Um, when you talk about a bank and sort of the legacy technology that they have, um, it's not just the legacy that they have in one department. Every product has its own tech stack, right? Yeah, they do. And so yeah. when we talk about modern financial services, um, one of the main trends that we're seeing is like this need to be able to see across the tech stack so you can actually understand who your customer is at the day, whether the, at the end of the day, whether they have a mortgage, whether they're a, a small business client, whatever it is. So like, how are you seeing clients start start to address that? You know, um, we've been talking about this problem and this challenge that these banks have had for a really long time um, because, you know, as, especially these larger banks as they've built up, they have different technology, different tech stacks, different vendors. It's just a very uh, diverse product stack that exists within these banks and all for various and good reasons why they built it that way. But that's been years and years of progress that's happened. And so in a lot of cases, you have uh, banks that have been trying to figure out how do I look across that for a really long time and pull all of that data together so that you can truly get that customer 360 view so that you can personalize those services that you're providing. And quite frankly, um, I don't think any of them have figured it out. And as we think about data, um, data banks are so rich with data and they have so much data that exists within their various uh, product sets. Part of the difficulty is what do you pull out, right? So as, you, as you're looking at that, that customer and you're wanting to pull out various data points so that you can see that customer view, Part of the challenge is what do you pull out of that particular product set and how do you put that into a consumable data repository that is then valuable and accessible for you so that you truly can see what's happening. And the other key part of this is how do you do it in real time? Because that's the other part, because as you know, as we talk about and we look at the um, just what's happened from a social media perspective and as Gen Z gets older and, you know, the Gen Alphas get older, that personalization, that need for real-time immediacy of, of those product sets and those views becomes even more and more important. So, you know, um, like I said, we've been talking about this for a long time. I don't think We've completely cracked the nut yet on how we actually pull all of that together. But I do know as we talk about data and the importance of data, it's still a goldmine. The mm -hmm. banks still sit on an enormous amount of data. It's all about how do you pull that data together and then personalize that for their consumers. And 
I think with the advent of AI and that becoming more and more prevalent in this space and being more acceptable to be utilized, I think we're going to start seeing some changes on how that's able to be pulled together. But I still think we have a lot of work to do. I totally agree with you on that. But And it sounds like what you're saying, Serena, is that this, some of the solutions, at least short term, will sit on top of the technology stack. And it's not necessarily ripping out and going to a new core that's going to enable this. It's, it sounds like more point solutions, essentially. And I think that's an important thing because, you know, I think a lot of banks, as they think about how do we solve these problems, a lot of the folks that have been doing this for a long time, that's the first thing that comes to mind is I got to go rip out and replace and I got to go find a brand new vendor to do this. I think those days are gone. I think now it's more of a it's more of a conscious decision of looking at what you have and how do you augment this technology in order to provide those services that you really need to provide to that consumer base? Or how do I pull out what I need in order to provide that functionality or that feature? And so I think the technology continues to advance. So it's not so much a rip and replace. So I don't think that uh, banks necessarily need to rip out their core I think over time, the cores are going to just become more of a ledger versus more of that complete function, that heart and lung of the bank. Um, and as you put these point solutions or these other tech stacks on top of them, you're still able to provide those services. It's just in a different way than what, you know, some of us who have been in the business for a long time is used to seeing. Before we continue, I wanted to draw your attention to I2C's recent research on how younger consumers make credit decisions. You know, tracking Gen Z and how financial institutions will need to evolve to serve them has been a major theme for us here at Tearsheet over the past year. And this report is important if you're offering, or thinking about offering, any credit products like credit cards or BNPL to younger customers. What was interesting to me in this report is Gen Z's response to incentives, how rewards drive their usage of credit cards and how it's different than generations before them. Also, figuring out how younger customers use revolving credit with a mix of BNPL is essential for serving them in the future, particularly in an environment of tight credit. With I2C's best-in-class credit, debit, prepaid, and core banking solutions, I2C is helping FIs and fintechs effectively serve the needs of younger consumers and not just talk about it. It's an important report. Download the report at tearsheet.co slash I2C. One of the things you said earlier in our conversation, Serena, which, which, which I really liked was this, this need to address the, the rising expectations of younger customers. And I think this is something that we've also been talking about a long time. It doesn't just pertain to Gen Z and Gen uh, Alpha. Um, how, how are you seeing the industry rise to the occasion to be able to service Gen Z? Let's start with Gen Z, um, who are have grown up digitally, have grown up with Amazon and Netflix and feeling like their, their, their service providers really understand who they are and can personalize their services. Yeah. So it, I'm always fascinated by the different generations and how they react to different things. Because being a Gen Xer, I, I know I am a, um, I am a sucker. If I go shopping and somebody puts a complete outfit together for me and it looks nice, I'm going to buy every single time. But I also know that my kids and my grandkids aren't necessarily going to shop that way. 
And when we think about Gen Zers, they are the first social generation, meaning that they grew up with access to the internet. So any question that they had, they can immediately go and get an answer to. Mm -hmm. Um, What I also find fascinating is when we think about their buying trends, we think about how they look at their financial, um, just their financial well-being and how they purchase. It's also very different than than Gen X because um, I did a panel several years ago with uh, each one of the different generations represented. And what I what I found from the Zenji participant was what he said that he the way he likes to purchase is he wants to go and do all of this research. He wants to go to the mall. He wants to touch and feel, whatever it is he's he's searching for. And then he'll go on the internet and he'll buy. And he goes on the internet and he buys because he can get a better price. He can get it from whomever and get it delivered directly to his home. And so, but he still wanted to touch and feel it. So when you think about merchants and how do you service to a a Gen Z in the future, they may not necessarily be walking into your stores to purchase at that point. They may be walking into your store to see what their options are and then purchasing later. So you need to think about that. Um, and then the other thing that I will I will just say is we think about Gen Z and the way that they manage their money is a, a Gen Z, in a lot of cases, it's all about how do I budget so that um, not only can I buy the bare shoes today, but I can go on the trip tomorrow and I can do all of these things. So when you think about a Gen Z, you have to think about your various options that you have to make that purchase, whether that be buy now, pay later, whether that be your credit product, whether that be <clears throat> just through a debit, uh, you know, them being able to pay for that in real time, whatever that is, you have to give them those various options because for them, it's all about how do I budget appropriately so that I can I can do and feel and purchase all of the things that make sense for me? That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I want to shift our conversation to real-time payments. And um, when we talk about these trends that we've seen sort of um, dangling in front of us that are multi-year trends, like we've seen this one coming too. And, and yet I still think many um, FIs that I'm speaking to here on this podcast as well um, aren't quite ready yet. I shouldn't say aren't quite ready. They're not fully ready. Um, Where do you see, um, at least in the near future, in 2024, where do you see real-time payments coming in? Is this this something executives should really come up with a strategy with right now? You know, uh, this is another one we've been talking about for several years. You know, it all started with Zelle. And I always find that very so fascinating. You know, when we think about Zelle, it was really... um, Real, uh, real-time presentment, not real-time posting. So when you think about real-time payments and you think about FedNow, I think about real-time posting and the actual immediate movement of that, that money. <clears throat> and the thing that comes to mind for me as we, as we continue to evolve is what are the use cases for those real-time payments? So when you think about um, being able to pay in real time or, you know, uh, be able to purchase goods in real time, whatever that is. So one of the use cases, for example, that we used to talk about quite a bit 
is think about a small business and they need to purchase supplies for whatever project that they're on or for whatever, whatever um, service that they're providing. So my husband does construction. So a lot of times he'll have to go to the lumber yard and he'll have to make a purchase in real time for lumber. Um, I think that's a great use case for real-time payments if, in fact, there are particular supplies, large purchase supplies for a small-time, small, uh, small business that needs to purchase those in real time because then the lumberyard knows that they've got paid in real time. And then you think about gig workers and you think about those real-time payments that need to come from that, or you think about your drivers or Uber drivers of the world. So if, you know, as I think about financial institutions, one of the things that I always, uh, the question that I have is, who do you want to service? And what services are you interested in providing? Because they're all going to be a little bit different. So dependent upon the use case in which their consumer base is looking for or that they want to launch into, I think real-time payments could make a lot of sense. And then it, it's really a matter of how they want to present that to their customer base. Interesting. We've, we've heard um, similar to what you just said, Serena, like, you know, dis disbursements are, are, are one of the uh, first use cases as well, as well as like pay on demand type things um, for, for salary. Um, I've heard even one company call it streaming salary, which feels very <laughs> Gen Z to me, but that concept I think makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to go back to our, our, our conversation about, um, financial institutions and sort of the, the struggles that they have with, with different systems for different products and maybe hear how I2C, um, I guess, changes that about specifically around the ability to, to identify customers across the systems. Uh, I think, I think architecturally you guys, you guys built something there that that's quite interesting. Yeah, so I've grown up. I've grown up in this space, right? So I've worked with banks my entire career. I've worked at banks and worked servicing banks. And I will tell you, the thing that I get most excited about as I think about I two C and the tech stack that we have built here is that it truly is a single tech stack that has the capability to offer all of your card issuing services, whether that's credit, debit, prepay along with all of the service components that go around that with like fraud, um, chargebacks, all of those, as well as there's a core banking component that's also built into that tech stack. So when you think about having all of that within a tech stack, think about the ability that you have to consume all of that information about those consumers in the same tech stack. So we talked a little bit about big banks and their uh, dispersed systems that they have for all of their different products, whether that be credit or mortgages or loans or debit or whatever that is, having that all together in a single tech stack. So um, not only do you have the data that's all sitting within that same tech stack where you can offer those personalized real time type of use cases and services to clients, but um, you also have the ability to offer new product sets. So think about a customer that may be applying for an uh, unsecured credit card. They don't necessarily get approved for that, but the, you may approve them for a secured credit card. So within that same tech stack, 
you can actually offer them multiple products and you don't have to go to a different tech stack in order to service them. You can do that all within that same tech stack. The other thing that I find so exciting about I2C is the ability to move around the globe with our customers. So we have customers today that are in over 200 different territories and countries throughout the world on the same tech stack. So what that means is their, their consumer, their customer, no matter where they are in the world, is going to transact. It's all going to look the same. And from a client perspective, the reporting is all going to look the same. So the feature functionalities are the same. All of that is the same. So um, in my previous life, depending on which tech stack you chose in which country would depend on the feature functionality and how that looked for you or how the reporting looked. But today we can move around the globe with you and it all look the same. And that sounds like um, that services international companies. Like I know we, we've had a few financial institutions that have been on the show recently that they're hearing sort of these mid-market companies, like they go international from day one. So it, I think having that type of, um, unified experience across geographies must be a huge boon for them. It extremely huge. It gives uh, financial institutions the ability to really look outside of the borders that they they live in today. Because even think about if you're sitting in the U.S. and you want to service clients that sit in Canada or Mexico, you have that capability to do that very easily with the I2C tech stack that's available to you. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in Africa or Europe, but those capabilities are also available if that's where um, if if that's where you want to move. So we're getting near the end of our conversation, Serena, and, and this wouldn't be a 2024 financial services fintech podcast if I didn't ask you a little bit about AI, a little bit about a blockchain, and a little bit about quantum computing. Um, are any of those things that that you're thinking about as you think about features or or um, platform technologies in the upcoming year? So I think everything that we do going forward has to have AI at least as part of the conversation. And we need to be talking about how or can we use AI to provide some function of the service or is there a capability that we can add AI to be a part of that? So, um, for example, we're using AI quite extensively in our fraud capabilities. So as we sense. look at how do we continue to get ahead of fraudsters, because we've been talking about it for years. They're not getting dumber. They get smarter every single year. We've got to get smarter and get ahead of them. And so we are employing now AI technology to continue to enhance our fraud capabilities and our fraud rules to get ahead of that. I think as we think about any new feature functionality, um, we've got to do that with always asking ourselves the question, does AI make sense in this, this capability? Is it something that we can utilize? You know, when we've talked about data, I think AI has a lot of potential to allow us to utilize the data and create those personalized services because we haven't even talked about Gen Alpha yet. And so when you think about Gen Alpha, you know, they they came around 2010 and that was when the iPad was launching and also Instagram started. And so when you think about, you know, we talked about Gen Z's and how they approach different things, just think about Gen Alpha. 
and how they're going to approach the world. Because even today, as I watch my grandkids, as they play with my phone or they play with the iPad, they have zero tolerance for ads. Everything's immediate. They get frustrated if something, you know, takes too long to load. And so when you think about the expectations that have continued to um, grow as we've looked at the different generations, Gen Alpha is going to throw us for a loop as well. So we already need to be thinking about how are we going to service this generation? Because there is going to be no loyalty. There is going to be no patience. There is going to be, you know, this uh, expectation that things will be personalized for them, that we will give them immediate access to stuff. And so we've got to build that now in anticipation because we're going to blink and they're going to be the next consumer that's that's shopping or transacting or opening up a bank account. Well, it sounds like what you're saying also, because it won't be loyalty, experience really becomes the lock-in that that this mm-hmm. gener- these new generations will have. Um, I want to ask you one last question before we end. And, and as we look into 2024 and you think about your clients, whether that's on the fintech side or that's the, the bankings and financial institution side, um, what are you most excited about for them? Uh, you mentioned in the beginning, I like the way you phrased it. There are challenges, but there are also opportunities. They come side, you know, they're two, two different sides of the same coin. Um, where are the opportunities for them this year? Yeah, so I'll teach, I'll take each one separately. So when I think about banks, so um, when you think about just what's happened in the banking landscape over the last 20 years, so in the year 2000, there were over 8,000 banks. When you look at the number of banks now, there's a little over Half. four. Right. So the number of financial institutions has dropped by 51% over the last 23 years. But, you know, there's been a lot, a lot that's gone on from a banking perspective. The thing that I get excited for and the thing that I think banks should get excited about is it's not just the fact that they're, you know, they're getting squeezed, but they have opportunities like never before to offer products and services to their customer base, as well as they have an opportunity to get into the fintech space as well, right? So we we actually work with a lot of FIs who, um, they kind of blur those lines between am I a bank or am I a fintech? And what products and services do I want to provide to the market? Because, you know, as we continue to move into the digital spaces, everything's becoming more digital. Uh, cash is always, <laughs> I think is always going to be around, but the amount of cash that's getting transaction, transact, transacted is continuing to decline. So, you know, when I think about banks, the opportunities that they have is not only how do I service my consumer today from a, a depository perspective or a loan perspective, but how do I how do I also service the fintech space so that I can really make an impact on how consumers are going to transact, whether that be, you know, whatever, whether that that be, you know, through a credit card or that be through a loan or whatever. So um, I get really excited because banks really have the opportunity to make such a change in their communities. It's just a matter of them deciding on how they want that to look for them as they grow. And then in the fintech space, um, you know, fintechs have had a hard 2023. I'm 
I believe that 2024 is going to be an uptick for them. I think we're going to see more fintechs start to come come back around. And so I'm excited to see that be a part of that. Thank you for joining us on the Tearsheet Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here.